Welcome to Native America Calling, I'm Sean Spruce. For decades, tribes along the Klamath River in Northern California and Southern Oregon have been calling for the removal of several hydroelectric dams. And their nonstop advocacy has paid off. The Federal Energy Regulatory Commission just cleared the way to take out four of the largest dams. It's an important move to save the river salmon, which is a precious cultural resource for the tribes along the river. We'll hear more about this historic decision right after the news. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. Secretary of the Interior Deb Holland says in the last two years, the Biden-Harris administration has committed to working with tribes and has made many investments in Indian country. Holland delivered opening remarks at the White House Tribal Nation Summit Wednesday morning, which is being held in person in Washington, D.C. She told tribal leaders the Interior Department alone has invested more than $45 billion in Indian country through the American Rescue Plan, the Bipartisan Infrastructure Law, and the Inflation Reduction Act. Holland talked about a land transfer for Montana tribes and announced a new oral history project slated for 2023 for Indian boarding school survivors. This has never been undertaken by the United States government and is a resource that I know many of you will have requested as part of your own work to document your own history. This project demonstrates the new era I spoke of, over the next two days, you will hear even more about the work that is happening and the opportunities with your partnerships that lie ahead. Holland announced the creation of a new Office of Strategic Partnerships, which is working to build nine new Bureau of Indian Education schoolyards across the country. She touched on tribal co-stewardship to address climate change and co-management of lands and waters. She says there's work being done on broadband, including an agreement to help bring electromagnetic spectrum access to tribal lands. Holland says she'll be meeting with tribal leaders throughout the next two days to discuss issues impacting Indian country. Wednesday morning also included tribal leaders and and administration officials taking part in a panel on education and native languages. Tribal leaders from the country's 574 federally recognized tribes were invited to take part in the two-day summit. During the White House Tribal Nation Summit, President Biden is expected to proclaim a Nevada sacred site off-limits to development, with a formal designation of Avikwame as a national monument. Native groups have been advocating for its protection. The area is sacred to 12 tribes and is the center of creation stories, says Taylor Patterson with the Native Voters Alliance, Nevada. It's the place where all of their traditional stories and knowledge comes from. And then for our southern Paiute tribes in the area, it's also a part of the Salt Song Trail. And so that tells really the life cycle of Paiute people and how they moved through the land and all the important places, plants and animals in the area. It's located between the Lake Mead National Recreation Area and the Nevada-California border covering nearly 450,000 acres in southwestern Nevada. A federal judge has ordered Enbridge and the Bad River Tribe in Wisconsin to come up with a joint plan to avoid a spill from an oil and gas pipeline should erosion worsen on the tribe's reservation. Danielle Kading reports the ruling stems from the tribe's lawsuit that seeks to shut down the Canadian energy firm's pipeline on its reservation. Enbridge's Line 5 pipeline will continue to operate, but U.S. District Judge William Conley said risk of a significant rupture exists where it crosses the Bad River. 
Conley said the negative effects in the Bad River watershed and Lake Superior could be catastrophic. The line carries up to 23 million gallons of oil per day from Superior across northern Wisconsin to Sarnia, Ontario. The federal judge ordered Enbridge and Bad River to meet by December 17th to discuss installation of emergency shutoff valves, a joint proposal for shutting down and purging the line, and projects that could slow further erosion. The two must submit their proposal by Christmas Eve. An Enbridge spokesperson says it looks forward to discussing the issues with Bad River. Bad River Tribal Chairman Mike Wiggins Jr. did not respond to requests for comment. For National Native News, I'm Daniel Kading. And I'm Antonia Gonzalez. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. You've probably seen those car ads, low price, low payments, but when you get to the dealer, there could be a catch. If a dealer isn't honest when it comes to its car ads, tell the Federal Trade Commission at reportfraud.ftc.gov. Support by the Federal Trade Commission. Program support by Penguin Random House, publisher of Probably Ruby by Lisa Bird Wilson, a novel about a Métis woman adopted by white parents who goes in search of her identity. More on this and other stories at prh.com slash stories of the land. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. This is Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce, speaking with you today from Anchorage, Alaska. After decades of fighting, tribes in Northern California can celebrate the pending removal of four dams on the Klamath River. Federal regulators cleared the way to remove the dams starting as early as next summer. If the plan comes to fruition, it will be the largest dam removal and salmon restoration project in history, which is something tribes say is sorely needed to bring salmon back to their people. In this hour, we'll talk with tribal members about the ongoing efforts to remove dams on the Klamath River and what this recent decision means for tribes, salmon, and the environment. You can join us, too, if you're listening in the Klamath Basin area. Tell us your take on the significance of removing the dams. How would a free-flowing Klamath River impact your life and connection to your culture? We want to know. Give us a call, 1-800-996-2848. Another thing to consider, how have dams changed the ecology where you are, wherever that location is in Native America? Once again, that number, 1-800-99-NATIVE. Phone lines are open now. Joining us first is Russell Buster Atterbury. He is the chairman of the Karuk Tribe. Chairman Atterbury, welcome to Native America Calling today. Yotua, thank you. Thank you for having me. Well, please start us out with a little bit of history. Uh, when were these dams built and, and what's been the impact on the surrounding landscape and ecology? Uh, well, the impact of the dams um, from the time they were put in until now, uh, the net result is, has been devastating to the, um, the fish run, the water quality, and the water temperature, um, which resulted in uh, many different instances of fish kill uh, on the Klamath River. 
Um, I, I was uh, born and raised in Happy Camp, California, which is the midpoint of the Klamath River from the headwaters uh, down to the coast. And um, the uh, the fish runs were healthy, and, and uh, we still did uh, the, the salmon and the steelhead were um, food staples for families. And it was a... It was really a, um, um, a way of uh, becoming a man for me is, is being able to go out and provide fish for my, my family, for my relatives, for our elders, and you know to hear to hear your family give thanks for the for the food that's on the table was um, um, was really important to uh, our part of growing up and and. Uh, with this dam removal, I hope that our Native children will be able to hear those words again. Chairman, you describe growing up in, in the area and the salmon were, were healthy and strong. And uh, about when did your people realize there was a problem and, and linking it to the dams and, and just completely changing uh, the environment there and also the health of the fish? Well, I, I think the uh, the indigenous people uh, that lived along Klamath River knew that this uh, was a problem from the beginning. Uh, I, I guess when when they put in the lower dam, Iron Gate Dam, uh, while they had some um, habitat passage on uh, the dams above Iron Gate Dam, they put Iron Gate Dam in without any sort of uh, fish or habitat passage, so that that really made no sense to uh, the people living below the dams. Um, and over the years, we saw that um, that how detrimental uh, that move was to um, to cutting off uh, nearly 400 miles of spawning grounds for. Our salmon moving forward. Uh, the, the the lower dam was put in without any um, underwater release. Um, so the water that was released in the summertime was very warm and and uh, not conducive to uh, to the uh, health of the fish. Um, and then over the years, the the buildup of the blue green algae became very uh, 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 high toxic levels uh, at one time through um, environmental studies it it became 4,000 times the um, approved level uh, of, of, of toxic materials that were being released which is uh, you know contributed to uh, some of our, our fish kills that that we've had um, yeah, it's. I think from from the beginning, um, the people that lived below the dams uh, knew that, that mm -hmm. this would eventually be a problem. The um, the issue um, then to the local people was, you know, why weren't they consulted? Um, why wouldn't somebody come in and ask the people who live here? Um, what's a good idea and what's not a good idea. Um, but uh, that consultation process didn't happen. 
We're very pleased okay. that the consultation and, and we're process talk, is approved. Yeah. Okay, and we're going to Go talk ahead. more about what it's taken to convince federal officials uh, that these dams were detrimental to the salmon. We also want to talk about um, the power that that dam generates and whether or not uh, that is significant to your tribal citizens and, and what it's going to take to replace that, that electricity, if so. But before we do that, we have a caller right now, and uh, he's up in Anchorage, Alaska, too. His name is Rory, listening on KNBA. Rory, welcome to Native America Calling. Yeah, well, it's great. I love the show. Been a long, long, long-time listener. Long-time listener. I grew up in Klamath great, great. Uh, Falls. Grew, grew up in Klamath Falls. The, the town that's named Klamath Falls because it has no falls because of a dam. And uh, I grew up near the traditional village site of the Klamath uh, on Lower Klamath Lake where it enters uh, Link River. That's the, the channel that runs between Upper Klamath Lake and the lake that is below Upper Klamath Lake, uh, Lake Iwana. Now, is that small dam uh, due to be taken out? Well, Rory, thanks. Uh, let's go ahead and ask the chairman uh, that very question. Chairman, this smaller uh, dam that Rory mentions there on this lake, are you familiar with it and whether or not that's one of the four dams that's uh, pending removal? Um, I am not familiar with that, but to my knowledge, uh, it's not one of the ones that's going to be removed. Um, but again, I, I don't, I can't say that for a hundred percent. I know that there was, uh, two dams that were going to be left and, um, um, off the top of my head, I can just name the Iron Gate Dam, Copco 1 and Copco 2. And, um... Okay. Yeah, Rory, are you still on the line? What about what about uh, John John Boyle? Is that going to be left? Um, Feel free to respond, Chairman. Yeah, I I I, I don't know that. I know of the three. Uh, if I had to take a guess, I would think John Boyle was one of the ones that can was is going to be removed also. But I I don't know that for a hundred percent. And Rory, what was that earlier dam you mentioned on on the lake? I'm just going to write this down. Maybe. It was on the dam. It's a small dam on Lake River. Lake River. On okay. Lake River, we got another guest. Lake River, and it's 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 yeah. So we, this is a good thing. This is a good thing. And the farmers who are crying about their water, they knew the deal. They knew that the tribes had the rights going in. The tribes have the rights to preserve okay. their their heritage and their fish. All right. Well, Roy, thanks for calling in today. And I'm glad to hear that you are a big fan of Native America Calling as well. And uh, Chairman, obviously, Rory is supportive of the removal of these dams. And he mentions uh, that the tribes have the right to, uh, to how that water is managed. But I do want to ask you about uh, the power that's generated by those, by those dams. And uh, do tribal citizens rely on any of their electricity needs uh, from those dams? And if so, uh, how will that be replaced when these dams go down? So there, um, the KRRC, the Klamath River uh, Restoration uh, Corporation, they've um, mitigated uh, all the um, the power 
um, the power that will be lost. It, it, they, they've always put mitigation efforts in there, so so uh, the houses that um, that would would lose access to those powers that they have um, other sources, and um, all that has been mitigated. It was it was um, a very small amount of power. Uh, that okay. came from those damn the hydro, uh, hydroelectric power, um, but the, yeah, we've um, gone to great lengths to mitigate and make sure that uh, the uh, users of that power are um, still have sources. We are speaking today with Chairman Russell Atterbury, and he is the chairman of the Karuk tribe, and uh, they have four dams there uh, within the Klamath Basin area that are slated to be removed. And this is just one project, but there are many, many dams throughout Native America that are slated to be removed or destroyed uh, in upcoming years as factors change uh, necessitating the need for those dams and also their impact on economies as well as ecological and environmental concerns. Folks, if you've got a question, if you've got a comment, if you live in an area that has a dam and, and you have thoughts on how that dam is managed or whether or not that dam needs to continue operations, please give us a call. We would love to get your take on the air today, 1-800-996-2848. We've got producers standing by. Our phone lines are open right now. If you give us a call, we'll get your comments on the air. Again, that number, 1-800-996-2848. We'll be right back. Tribal museums are a hub for cultural resources, an archive for important items, and they're on the front lines for repatriating remains and important items. As the first ever Tribal Museum Day approaches, we're taking a look at the important role Native-run museums play. That's on the next Native America Calling. Local tribal museums are the experts of indigenous histories, cultures, and values with the tools to educate the public. On the first National Tribal Museums Day, on December 3rd, participating museums will offer no-cost admission, special exhibits, and live cultural demonstrations. Learn more at indian-affairs.org slash Tribal Museums Day. The Association on American Indian Affairs supports this program. You're listening to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. We're talking about the Klamath River in Northern California. Four major dams are set to be removed in the next few years. What do you think about this historic decision? Do you have concerns about a dam on a river where you live? Join our conversation by calling 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. Let's bring in our next guest now. Joining us from McKinleyville, California, is Charlie Reed. He's the educational director for Save California Salmon and a cultural practitioner for the Karuk tribe. He's Hoopa, Yurok, and Karuk. Charlie, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you. It's an honor to be here to, to contribute to the narrative of a historic moment such as the Klamath Dam removal. Um, so I appreciate everybody's time and tuning in. Thank you. Well, 
Well, Charlie, we appreciate your time as well. And, and please talk to us about your organization. How long has it been involved in these efforts to remove the Klamath River dams? Yeah, so this organization has very much been uh, a grassroots effort. You know, it's just been a couple of community members, both non-Native and Native people who are like wondering why they weren't a part of these decision-making processes. Um, so it really comes down to a collaborative effort of the local tribes um, and community members who who understood the impacts of the dam. So they kind of just um, started rallying, showed up to Sacramento Capitol buildings and just started voicing their concerns. Um, and I think that Save California Salmon was that. And so since then, it's kind of evolved to recently we've become a nonprofit organization um, where we're able to you know, continue those advocacy efforts like on the on the ground and also pivoting into the educational system for local youth, Native youth to understand, um, you know, the power of their voice and perspective and also getting into the education curriculum to um, represent themselves, their realities and experiences um, in the context of education. So that's kind of like the, the approach that we have. Um, as well as having culturally relevant activities during the summertime and just keeping them engaged when um, school is out of session. So it's a very um, unique approach to kind of combating climate change as well as these uh, policy decisions that have been ongoing since contact. So it's really great. I, I love the work that we do, and I believe in it. So that makes everything better. Mm-hmm. Charlie, let's talk more about the salmon and their significance, uh, not just historically for your people, but now, today, in contemporary times. Uh, how dependent are, are your people uh, on the salmon runs every year? Oh, we're extremely dependent. Um, like most native people at some point um, are place-based people, and we believe that if the earth and the environment is unhealthy, then we as people are also healthy. Um, we have a symbiotic relationship with the river, and a big part of what the river offers us is the fish. <clears throat> Historically, you know, that fed us for a majority of the time and even into the winter season. So that was um, how we survived and thrived. But today, it's similar. You know, I think time, the constructs of time has shifted. Um, so what fish mean to us today, it, it kind of is an opportunity for us to, you know, like, chairman was saying um remember you know what our purpose is um you know sharing fish and giving fish to our elders and kids and people is a big part of who we are it's the fabric of our community and culture um and so to in in today's time i remember my earliest most um, prized experiences and memories were coming from the fishery of Ishi fishy falls um dip net fishing with my friends and family and um, my dad, you know, had us down there before we could walk. So it's very um, important to us that we understood what went into that and um, to always give away fish to elders and kids first. So it really was a space to, to gather in, in a healthy, positive way and um, get get some of our Native men kind of off the streets, if you will, um, into a place where, you know, they could thrive and remember their purpose and belonging, um, which since when when the fit if you can imagine no fish running that means there's no one fishing and if you're not fishing then what are you doing you know so um, I think that's kind of what it looks like today for us is like we need fish to to live a health healthy life you know as well as the nutrition that comes from harvesting fish so yeah that's how I'd mm -hmm. answer that one 
And how healthy are the fish populations right now? And can you give us any gauge on, on a timeline for how long it might take to restore the salmon populations? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so I remember probably years before the 2002 fish kill, I remember we were getting pulled out of school just to help pack out fish, um, you know, having 100 a day, 100 fish a day. Now, over the last decade, you know, there's seasons where we wouldn't even touch 50 in a season in a year. Um, so that kind of paints a picture. But this year was like one of those special years where we kind of were able to like graze those um, early 2000 numbers. I remember just hearing the joy and excitement in my dad's voice when he called me to report, you know, like he caught about 85, 90 fish today. And, you know, it was like, I thought I was in a dream, you know, but that just shows me, that just shows me just how resilient these fish are. You know, I don't want to underestimate their ability to adapt. I think that they're going to surprise us and how fast they um, return, you know? So I'm just, I think that it's going to be sooner rather than later. They're going to, they're going to know probably really soon that they have access to 90% of their spawning habitat that has been taken from them for the last hundred plus years. So definitely am giving them the benefit of the doubt that they're going to turn things around for us. Now, Charlie, there have been some critics of the removal project, and, and they argue that it won't be enough to, to restore the salmon populations. And, and they're arguing that uh, there are larger environmental factors at work in the ocean, and, and those play a more damaging role than these dams do. Is that a valid argument? I mean, I would say that, it, it, you know, you can always argue that. I think that, however, a big part of the problem that kind of heightens the severity of other said issues is the strain of the river. Um, I think that this is one big wound that will be healing. And when this, you know, is kind of under wraps and taken care of, then I think that'll free up some resilience and ability for other environmental impacts to be taken care of and kind of react to that, to that change. Um, so I, I think it's the first step in the right direction to get to a better place for everyone, um, not just the Native people, but for everyone who, who kind of recreates and enjoys the wildlife and outdoors. Um, but first and foremost, because Native people depend on the environment and natural world um, significantly, I think that's at the forefront of the conversation. But I do think mm -hmm. that this is the best way we could use our time because the time is ticking with climate change and other external factors that induce these issues. Earlier with Chairman, uh, we touched on, on, on what these these dams do to, to salmon populations. They change water temperature for one. And could you give us a, a little bit more of a description in terms of, of, of what the, the, the impact is uh, by these dams on the fish? I think it would really help our listeners who maybe aren't familiar with uh, the Pacific Northwest and, and how salmon live uh, in these waterways. Yeah. So in addition to the temperature and water quality that these dams put on our river, um, it's like I was saying, they're very much a blockade of fish accessing spawning habitat, meaning they don't have historical access to where, you know, their ancestors had um, laid their eggs in, in very optimal conditions, like 
far as water quality, um, water flow, um, stuff like that that has just been kind of empty since the implementation of Iron Gate with no fish ladder. So just to access the spawning grounds, which is reproduction, um, that's a significant barrier to and and so when when they don't have that access, that means that they depend on other tributaries that have been historically used for more fall runs. So this, this these dams significantly impact the spring Chinook salmon run because they're the fish cohort that went furthest up into the basin. Um, so now they're competing with their fall run cousins for for that habitat. That um, you know then you get that cross cross-contamination, if you will, um, on, on that stock. So it kind of is um, taking away their ability to be resilient to water flows and habitat. So that that's a big concern, and I think that's at the forefront of how we're, uh, like, where we're at today as far as the return of, of fish. So, yeah. Okay. All right. Well, thanks, Charlie. Let's go to the phones again. We have Kyle now listening on KGUA in California. Kyle, you're on Native America Calling. Yeah, hey, I just wanted to call and uh, just say, you know, I really like this show. I try to catch it. I'm at work most of the time when it's on, so good when I can have time to comment. But, uh, yeah, it's a good thing to take these dams out. I got family from up that way. Um, I'm a tribal member at Round Valley there in Covalo, California. Um, I don't live on the res, but I know my tribe's been fighting to get um, one of the dams on the Eel River taken out, and uh, it's kind of in, in the process from what I understand. Um, it's a good thing, and, and you know, this these all these rivers need to run free. I mean, yeah, there was ideas brought upon back in the day for these dams for power and, and for farming, but but, you know, we're all overlooked like always, you know, the indigenous people always just got to kind of suck it up and take it. And it's a good thing that now we can uh, speak up and help make some change, you know. And it's and I do mm-hmm. I do think there's factors in the ocean as well. But but like uh, what was his name? Charlie was just saying, you know, when you ask him about that, you know, it stems from where the fish have to go to to reproduce and, and where they're coming from. You know, they end up in the ocean. But uh you know, we all know there's overfishing and, and all these kind of things that, that go to that. But I remember being a kid on, on some of those smaller creeks, and we would catch, like, king salmon and stuff, you know. And uh, we weren't allowed by by our California state laws to fish up there. But, you know, that's what we did as because as, our people did it forever. Um, and one other thing I wanted to touch on the rivers was I remember back my dad talking when he was still alive about um, – they come in and they took all these logs and, and all these jams and stuff out of the rivers thinking, oh, it's going to be a good thing. And and that was another big problem for our fish. You know, it, it made it to where the, the holes filled in with sediment. And uh, and I just wanted to put that out there. And uh, I appreciate you guys. appreciate the show and uh, all the things, you know. And uh, and it's a good thing to help, to help save the fish and, and restore that for all our people. Well, Kyle, we sure appreciate you calling in today. Uh, a great caller, by the way, and, and glad to know that you as well are a fan of Native America calling. And let's go back to, to Chairman Atterbury. He's also on our show today. And, and Chairman, we just heard Kyle talking about uh, his community there at Round Valley, and, and they are also uh, at odds with regard to a dam that's impacting their community. And um, I'd like to ask you, you know, talking with other tribes, 
and, and, and getting dams removed. And um, how did you folks go about convincing federal officials that these dams up there on the Klamath River were so detrimental to the salmon up there? Uh, well, it took uh, it took a lot of uh, work, um, um, thousands of, of people, uh, um, to bring awareness um, to to uh, uh, the state of the river and, and how it was dying. Um, but we did our due diligence um, in um, uh, researching and studying other dam removal projects. Uh, one in particular was the Elwa project. Up in Washington State, and um, I stayed in touch with. Um, he was a the Pacific uh, Northwest Pacific Region um, um, BIA Bureau of Indian Affairs attorney, and we attended meetings in D.C. together. And he oversaw that project, and he, he um, um, let me know firsthand that. They received the same concerns that maybe it'd take four or five or six years for the salmon to come back. Uh, lo and behold, the the removal of the Elba dams, the salmon came back the very next year, and they came back in force. So um, I, I think um, uh, making sure we did uh, did our homework and and. Um, um, studied the the effects of other dam removal projects um, is is going to be it's it's paid off in convincing our federal partners that um, that this dam removal will not only um, return the salmon to their um, original state but but um, that there that we need to continue to work together with other agencies, because this is um, what you'd call the tip of the iceberg, uh, restoration projects, um, water um, um, conservation projects. They they need to follow suit um, uh, the tributaries that enter into the Klamath, in particularly the Scott and the Shasta Rivers, are huge uh, spawning grounds and tributaries um restoration projects meaning we can bring back an economy in our forests um by by doing um um logging projects that when you go in you actually enhance the the streams and the creeks rather than cover them up in, with the old practices um we can create um the uh, fire breaks that that are that are needed for with these fires, and we can reintroduce uh, tribal ecological knowledge in the indigenous way uh, that they uh, worked with Mother Nature on on managing these lands. So. That's Chairman Russell Atterbury. He is uh, with the Karuk Tribe in Northern California, and um, we're talking today about. Dam removals, uh, big project pending up there uh, in the Klamath Fall, in the Klamath area, Klamath Basin, with regard to four dams that are pending removal. And these are big projects to remove a dam, to demolish a dam. If you've ever wondered what that takes to to remove a huge uh, structure like that uh, with 
millions and millions of gallons of water and uh, pressing up against that concrete structure like that. We're going to talk about that when we come back from this next break. Uh, learn more about what goes into demolishing a dam, what the cost is of demolishing that dam, and how that all plays out in these other larger economic and environmental concerns that are pressing uh, in so many Native communities and across the United States where we have many, many dams that uh, are outdated and in many cases are slated to be removed due to changing factors. And if you've got a call uh, that you'd like to make right now to our show and share some experience, share some knowledge that you have with regard to dams on tribal lands or perhaps what it takes to remove a dam, give us a call, 1-800-996-2848. More conversation on the other side. This Native American Heritage Month, remember, one in three Native American adults have high blood pressure. Check it at your nearest community health center. If the numbers are above 120 over 80, talk to a health care professional. Native community well-being is very important. You can take action by visiting heart.org slash hbpcontrol. This support provided in partnership with HHS slash OMH and HRSA under cooperative agreements CPIMP 2112-27 and CPIMP 2112-28. This is Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. We're focusing on the decision to take out dams on the Klamath River in Northern California and Southern Oregon. It'll be the largest dam removal once work gets started. The project is one of hundreds of dam removal operations that tribes are calling for around the country. Give us a call and share your thoughts on this project or other dam removals. We're at 1-800-996-2848, one 2848 one of our guests today is Charlie Reed, and he is the Educational Director for Save California Salmon and a Cultural Practitioner for the Karuk Tribe. And Charlie, I'd like to ask you a little bit more about what goes into removing a dam, any size dam, but especially these ones up there along the Klamath River. It seems like an, an enormously immense project. I would imagine many, many millions of dollars to do that kind of work. What do we know about what that's going to entail once that once that project comes underway? Yeah, this is, I think, a big important question that is at the front of everybody's mind. I know that, for one, I'm no engineer, you know, but I think that using um, a sense of logic and just, like, understanding that there are people, brilliant minds, who, who have a lot of practice in, in these type of projects, um, so just to, like, rest a little bit of anxiety or fear about, um, you know, just high water flows and, and things of that that maybe some landowners or property owners might have. Um, and I know that some folks, even in our community, are like, well, how is this going to impact our, our fishery? Is this going to, um, you know, mess up some hydrology that, you know, really makes our fishing practices unique and effective? Um, very fair concern. And I do know that from you know, at this point, and I still am, like, in the learning process of what it actually involves, but I have heard from pretty credible sources that they're going to um, drain the the dam reservoirs through the kind of emergency valve in, um, you know, during times of the year where it's already naturally high water or even in low water times of the year, 
you know, just so that we know that there's capacity in, in the watershed to, to take on some, some of that water flow. Um, so once that kind of gets to a size that maybe they feel is safe to kind of go through with the demolition process, um, they will do that accordingly. So very general kind of description I just gave, but um, I do not want to do a disservice of just the intricacies and complexities that, that go into dam removal processes. Um, like Chairman Atterbury had mentioned, I'm very um, diligent about, you know, collaborating with communities and tribes that have successfully done dam removal um, restoration projects. Um, so to have them on board is going to further um, ensure safety and concerns from the community. Let's let Chairman Atterbury chime in on, on this as well. Chairman, demolishing a, a dam, and as I understand it, there are also some concerns that uh, if the project goes over budget, because again, this is a, a multi-multi-million dollar uh, project to demolish these four dams, uh, I know some folks are concerned that that financial burden, if it goes under over budget, that could fall on taxpayers. Uh, is that a legitimate concern, Chairman? Uh, anything that uh, that goes over budget and falls on taxpayers is is always going to be a concern. Uh, again, um, I think all those concerns have been um, uh, mitigated um, fully with from KRRC, and and I do know in recent meetings that they right now they're they're running under budget, which is uh, unusual but uh, a good thing. Um, and I do know that uh, the other alternative to removing the dams uh, was to relicense and renovate the dams. And the cost to do that was going to be uh, approximately twice as much as the cost of removing them. So that was uh, a big decision by these dams that were um, privately owned. Uh, to take them out rather than relicensing red vending because that net result was going to be a lower cost. Okay. Now, we did have another caller, and they didn't want to go on the air, but they did say that uh, the energy from the dams was, was very little or is very little, which uh, echoes what you had said earlier, Chairman, regarding uh, how dependent community members are on that electricity uh, and the caller also mentioned fish ladders, uh, and that being uh, a too expensive option in terms of just using fish ladders for the exam, uh, for the the dam, uh, as as opposed to just removing it. And what do you know about that fish ladders? Um, uh, would that be too expensive uh, to install fish ladders as opposed to just tearing the dam down? Well, that again, Pacific Core was the. Um owners of the of, of the dams they were privately owned and um you know they had uh, stakeholders in particular the uh the, the homes that benefit from the the power from the hydroelectric energy but um uh yeah they um the fish ladders uh were to to renovate and put state of the art uh underwater release Fish and habitat passage um, was again the cost was going to be um, more than twice what they are to take them out. So that was a a, a big decision 
that, that swayed the decision by the um, private owners to decommission the dams rather than renovate and relicense. Okay. And, and Chairman, what are your expectations for the future? So let's click ahead uh, five, ten years. Uh, these four dams are, are gone. And and what are you hoping to see in terms of just not just the, the restored salmon population, but overall for your community? What do you think it will do economically, environmentally, ecologically, everything? What do, what's the big picture here? Uh, so the the big picture for um, the communities along Klamath River, uh, the people who live there, is going to be, um, uh, in my mind, um, some economic development. Um, I mentioned before, taking these dams out uh, should be considered a, a tip of the iceberg. Uh, we need to continue to work with irrigators, farmers, ranchers, uh, fish and wildlife, uh, forest service agencies in um, a co-management um, co-management way, a co-stewardship way. We what was left out of the equation before was tribal ecological knowledge. All the decisions that came from Washington D.C. or the state uh, capital in Sacramento were made without consulting the people who live here. And uh, that's what we need to include in, in this next round. So it, it will it will develop into what I mentioned early, uh, restoration projects. Um, it will develop a new way to manage our force, uh, and it will have a direct effect on the fires that we uh, that we have um, putting using the indigenous way of putting fire back on the landscape is something that the indigenous people did for thousands of years and it worked and in washington dc you've you've um uh, you've heard that uh, they it's going on right now that uh, they're working on uh, co-management and co-stewardship projects and when we the get the tribal ecological input that we leave the room with consent on how we move forward. Thank you, Chairman. And uh, Charlie, I, I want to bring you back in and, and let's talk a little bit uh, about the cultural significance here with these dams. And, and I'm curious because with uh, all these years where, where your salmon were so reduced, I mean, you mentioned uh, as a kid 100 salmon a day and then that going down to 50, and it's just this huge drop-off in that. And how did that impact uh, ceremonies and other tra uh, traditional practices there among your Karuk people with, with little or no salmon? And uh, is that going to take a lot to revitalize some of those cultural elements as well, Uh hopefully when these salmon return to those previous population levels? Yeah, that's a great question. I think there's a couple of things. For one, um, the salmon kind of traditionally have um, kind of triggered the start of our world renewal ceremony. So it was like we had somebody, you know, see the first fish, harvest the fish. Um, there's ceremonies around that. Um, so that really triggered the start of some ceremonies that we um, hold highly um, so that's one, you know, so if there's no fish returning, then there's no way of knowing um, 
from a traditional standpoint of the indication of timing. Um, for two, the, the water quality is um, integral to performance of such rituals. Um, you know, some some very um, important people in our ceremonies are asked to um, to to bathe, and hygiene and bathing is integral to our our processes in in our world renewal ceremonies. Um, so I think as soon as the dam removals the dams are removed, then that quality water quality will um, improve, and so that way our people aren't bathing in um, toxic green algae water. You know, so it's very um, important that we have that um, high quality water. Um, and three, the, the other point I wanted to make is in addition to like the in-stream improvement that will come from the dam removal, it's important for us to, to recognize the, the upslope management um, complexities as well. Our forests have been suppressed for hundreds of years. Um, so with that, it's basically a, a tinderbox ready for any catastrophic wildfires. And so I think that's something that would be also very important to restoring our cultural traditions and making sure that that's protected, maintained um, by our local community. And I think that we will see uh, an increase in social health and nutritional health. And uh, so I think that's um, how I believe that the dam's being removed as well as setting precedents for other people to have to kind of follow that lead and also channeling that energy um, towards the forestry and upslope management practices to be um, just that's just as important to the the river health. Um, so, those are some points that I would uh, make. Charlie, some of these uh, other economic factors uh, that we've touched on uh, on the show today, such as the droughts, uh, the wildfires, uh, all of these other very alarming trends that we're seeing environmentally in the Pacific Northwest, these have been documented extensively. We've done other shows on, on some of these topics, and I'm just curious to get your take because um, – we had a caller earlier that was asking about some of these other dams and some of these um, adjacent waterways and tributaries. And uh, how many dams are there overall along the Klamath River? And, and what's going to be the plan for those? And uh, are, are, at some point, are, are those dams also going to be causing some of these same problems that you're dealing with with regard to these four dams that are pending removal? Yeah, so that's a great question. I don't have precise numbers as far as how many dams are um, in these the watersheds. I know that I believe there are six in the Klamath River watershed. As far as the Eel River, I've, that's definitely not something that's in my scope of work. I will say that Save California Salmon is a part of the process to get those dams removed as well. Um, but I do think that they're going to ha- they're going to see similar differences. Um, in a good way, if those, if and when those dams do come down, um, and I did have an answer to the earlier call in about like is the, I think it's the Link River Dam that they're asking about that isn't slated to be removed. Um, it is um, J.C. Boyle one and two or one and Kafka one and two and Iron Gate. Those are the four dams that are slated to be removed. Um, but I do think that there's going to be a lot of opportunity for the local communities and hopefully the native communities to to have jobs available to be a part of this very important um, endeavor in restoring the land to where, you know, to a place where we're able to um, benefit from it. Um, I think that 
restoration efforts is the next kind of conversation that's going to be had on post-animal restoration efforts. And I definitely want to make sure that Native people are the ones who are kind of forefronting that effort because we all understand as Native people that we have a, a responsibility to carry through those um, through those responsibilities. So I think what I'm saying is it's okay if other people are part of that process, but it's also important to center the, the significance, the deep significance of what it means for Native people to be a part of that process. Um, aside from the economics, obviously, living in today's world, you know, we have to have an honest living, and I think this would be a sustainable investment when you're talking about people who've lived in these spaces since time immemorial, working, making a living, like they're not going nowhere. This is our home forever. Um, so I think that's just a wise investment. Charlie, we're going to have to wrap up the show in about a, a minute, but I, I want to ask you one more question because um, this idea of um, these projects and these efforts being multi-generational challenges, and I understand you grew up around these issues. You grew up in rallies, and, and you saw your dad and other people in courtrooms. And, and what do you tell young people there in your community now? Um, what do you tell them about these issues, and how do you inspire them to, 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 to take up the torch here uh, when it becomes their time to be leaders? About another minute before we got to wrap up, Charlie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I think that this is one thing that I've been talking about a lot is, like, I just am happy for the next generation to be able to, to live in a world where they could fish more than they could advocate for the importance of fishing and also just mm -hmm. understanding that the next generation, their their goal is going to be to be a part of the restoration effort and advocating for upslope management forestry strategies that um, further protects the sustainability of our culture and our environment. So that's how, you know, I think that's what is going to be brilliant to see is that, you know, it's just another thing that they're going to um, take care of for us. Well, I really appreciate that comment that you uh, look forward to a day when people will spend more time fishing than having to advocate for fishing rights. And at this point, we are going to have to wrap up the show. So I want to thank both of our guests today, Charlie Reed and Chairman Russell Buster Atterbury. Join us tomorrow as we start the celebration for Tribal Museum Day early. Until then, thanks for listening to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. Are you a Native American health care provider, recovery counselor, social worker, domestic and sexual abuse advocate, or traditional healer working in Native American communities? Dr. Ruby Gibson will begin a six-month advanced immersion in healing historical trauma. This online masterclass looks through the lens of a seven-generational recovery approach to provide powerful, proven modalities and is offered tuition-free to tribal members. Registration deadline is March 24, 2023. Info at freedomlodge.org who support this show. Enroll in health care coverage through CMS today and keep your health protected all year long. Contact your local Indian health care provider for more information. Visit healthcare.gov or call 1-800-318-2596. A message from the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services.
Native America Calling is produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico by Kiwanek Broadcast Corporation, a native nonprofit media organization. Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. Music is by Brent Michael Davids. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.